Amen, amen. Thank you so much, Chloe and David. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Happy Monday. Man, you guys are great. You're all great. Uh, it's so wonderful to be back together, and we're going to continue in worship. Um, and as we are turning the corner and talking about um, identity and sexuality as a part of our overarching theme of abundant living, and in order to live the abundant life Christ has made available to us, um, this is a key conversation. Um, as, our, as, as we are followers, as we're following Christ together. And so we have the honor and the privilege um, of both today and tomorrow to have Dr. Preston Sprinkle be, uh, will be speaking in chapel. Uh, today, um, he, it's really, today and tomorrow is a two-part series. So if you typically don't come to chapel on a Tuesday, I really want to invite you to make an exception and show up back tomorrow as he's really going to share today about our posture uh, how do we understand um, and how do we uh, uh, relate with the, the, the question around the LGBTQ community and what the Bible has to say about uh, homosexuality and tomorrow digging a little bit deeper into the position and the, the theology behind it um, from a, from a, for, with a nuanced perspective as well. And so I want to encourage you to show up both today as you're here, obviously, but also come back tomorrow. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Preston Sprinkle as, he, uh, as, as we invite him up. So Preston is a biblical scholar, an international speaker, a New York Times best-selling author who's written numerous books, including People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue. He's also served as a general editor for the new Two Views on Homosexuality, the Bible, and the Church from Zondervan. He has given talks to thousands of people worldwide on the topic of faith, sexuality, and gender. He and his wife, Chris, and their four children live in Boise, Idaho. And uh, we're really excited to see uh, what God's going to do in and through his time with us today. So uh, would you please give a warm Northwestern welcome to Dr. Preston Sprinkle. And would you please join me in praying for him and for ourselves as he shares with us. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we have been welcomed into your presence this morning. Uh, work afresh in us by your Holy Spirit. Fill Preston with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit to receive uh, your truth and your grace towards greater transformation in Christ's likeness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thanks, man. Appreciate oh. <laughs> you can keep the mic. I got my own. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for that introduction. It's so good to be here to talk uh, to Northwestern, University of Northwestern. There's a bunch of Northwestern universities around here, um, and I'm actually from the Northwest, so it's a little confusing to come to the Midwest at a school named <laughs> Northwestern University, but um, it's super good to be with you. Um, I am excited to talk, to talk to you about this topic, and uh, the topic of faith sexuality and gender is obviously very volatile. It's very complex. And I think this topic has not been addressed very well by the church as a whole. And so I know I'm walking into kind of a minefield and I'm going to assume that a lot of you are, have a lot of questions about this topic. Um, you're wrestling with it maybe on a theological level. Several of you I know are wrestling with it on a personal level. And so I just want to extend a special thank you to those of you who maybe you, are, you have a journey yourself. Uh, maybe you haven't told anybody. Maybe you're wrestling in secret. Maybe you've told a couple people, but um, I know it can be uh, really difficult to even come to a chapel and listen to somebody else talk about something that is so dear to your heart and is part of your own story. So uh, I'm so thankful that you're all are here. Let me introduce to you a few of my friends. These chairs represent uh, people I either know, people I've become friends with, or people who 
um, our friends of friends. This is Kevin. Kevin is a married gay man. He's in his early 50s. He's been married for about 15 years. And Kevin is, how do I say it? He's not a very religious person. In fact, he kind of can't stand Christians. The more conservative you are as a Christian, the more he can't stand you. And any chance he gets to speak out against you, speak out against the church, and just rail on Christianity, he will gladly take that opportunity. Kevin is the type of person that can get under the skin of many Christians that I know. This, as they say, they would call him a loud and proud, angry gay activist. This is my good friend, Tom. Tom is in his early 60s. He is married to a woman, has several kids and uh, many uh, grandkids. He is a, uh, Tom is a pastor of a conservative evangelical church, a fairly large church. Uh, Tom himself is politically and theologically very conservative, very conservative. And yet Tom is on the stage because from the time he can remember, he has experienced exclusive unwanted attractions to other guys and nobody knows about it. Now, again, he's, he's theologically conservative, and so he's not, he's not acting on this attraction. But he's so scared to death to tell anybody that he simply struggles with this, this, we'll call it a temptation, that he has had to keep it secret his entire life. And so Tom is, and I'll just throw this out there and let it sit for a little bit, he is a politically conservative, theologically, theologically conservative, closeted gay pastor. This is my dear friend Leslie. Leslie, from the time they were four years old, ha has experienced what psychologists call gender dysphoria. This, 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 this internal incongruence between who Leslie feels like she is on the inside and who her body tells her she is on the outside. She is biologically female, and yet everything about her has felt male from the time she can remember. Also, from the time she can remember, she was, has been madly in love with Jesus. Her earliest memories that she, can, that she has in her brain has to do with loving Jesus Christ. But growing up in the church wasn't the most conducive place for somebody to wrestle with their gender identity and her faith walk with Jesus Christ. We'll hear more about Leslie in a second. This chair represents a girl by the name of Maddie. Maddie is in her late 30s and Maddie is a lesbian. When Maddie was nine years old, her dad took her down the basement steps and took her into the bathroom of the basement, and he chained her to a toilet, and he left her there for three months. After a while, the chains started to wear through her skin, and so her dad came down, unchained her, took her by the face, and said, Honey, I'm so sorry I did this to you. But if you tell anybody about this, I will kill you. And then he proceeded to rape her for the next four years while she was off at elementary school. You see, Maddie's a lesbian. And she says, no man will ever, ever touch me again. This is my friend Matthew. Matthew is in his late 20s. He's a theology student. He's Sold out, believer, sold out believer in Jesus Christ from the time he can remember. He had unwanted attractions to other guys. And he spent years trying to pray the gay away. God, take us away. Please take us away. He would stay up late at night 
flooding his bed in tears, begging that God would take this away, but for whatever reason, God didn't take this away. Tried to go to therapy to become straight, and for whatever reason, he's still very gay. But he does a deep dive study of the scriptures and comes to the conclusion that God does not desire that he would act on this attraction, and so he commits his life to lifelong celibacy because he doesn't believe it's, it's he, well, he thinks it's sin to act on this unwanted attraction to other guys. Well, at the age of 19, as, as a church worker, he comes out to his elders and just says, hey, I want you to know that, um, uh, you know, um, uh, I'm, I'm following Jesus, I'm faithful to Jesus, um, it, it, but I want you to know that I'm, I, I experience unwanted attractions to other guys. I, I'm, I'm gay, but I'm not acting on it. I'm committing my life to celibacy. In fact, I haven't even touched another person romantically. <laughs> And one of his elders said, well, Matthew, we can't have you at our church because we don't allow the gay lifestyle at our church. And another elder jumped in and said, "Um, well, Matthew, we certainly can't have you around our children anymore. And Matthew had to clarify, sir, I'm sorry, I just want you to know I'm I'm not a pedophile. I have no desire to harm or violate a child. I'm simply attracted to other guys my own age. This is Eric. Similar to Matthew, grew up in a Christian home, Christian environment from the time he could, well, the, from the time he went through puberty, experienced unwanted attractions to other guys. Also, uh, trying to follow Jesus in that, but he was very mistreated at both public school and at church. He was mocked and made fun of and shamed and shunned and teased and called all kinds of names that I don't feel comfortable repeating on stage. He finally got the courage to come out to his parents, and his parents said, well, Son, we can't have some abomination living, living under our roof. And so they kicked him out of the house. And so Eric had to wander the streets as a gay teenager for a few years until at the age of 19, it got too difficult and he ended up taking his own life, becoming a well-known and all-too-common statistic of a gay teenager who is kicked out of the house and ends up on the streets and ends up taking his own life. We're going to talk about this topic, this, this issue that Christians debate. And I want to begin by reminding us all that we're not talking just about some issue to debate. We are talking about real people. A myriad of people, beautiful people who bear God's image with a diversity of stories and oftentimes a lot of trauma built into the stories, and I hate to say it, but oftentimes that trauma has been magnified by the church of Jesus Christ. And so when we engage this topic as Christians, we need to step into it cautiously and very humbly, always recognizing that we are talking about real people. I think about people like Kevin, okay, so some of my, I'll just say it, okay, this is my experience, some of my older Christian relatives can just get so angry at Kevin. Why does he hate the church so much? Why does he hate Christians so much? What did I do to him? That's actually a good question. Let's change the tone. Why does he hate Christians so much? You don't come out of the womb hating Christians. 
There's no anti-Christian gene that we're born with. You just come out of the womb and, ah, I can't stand those Christians. Like, that's just not a thing. There's a story there. The, the, the hatred, the vitriol, the anger is the tip of an iceberg. And as Christians, we need to get down below the surface and understand what has fed into that story, that narrative that has caused him to hate Christians so much. Maybe, maybe he's sick and tired of seeing Chairs turned upside down. Maybe he's tired of hearing stories like Maddie's. If you were Kevin, how would you feel about the church? You see, we've got to stop looking at the surface of this conversation, the, the, the tensions between the church and the LGBT community. We need to ask some deeper, complex questions about why has there developed so much animosity towards the church. I think about Maddie. And I think about Maddie when I'm looking at my social media sites, Facebook. And, uh, you know, whenever there's a, an article that's like forwarded to me or shared with me on the evils of homosexuality and how we need to protect our children from the evil gay people, and usually the comments are, you know, in all caps for some reason, and they're just really aggressive and outrageous. If Maddie was looking onto my social media sites about people, Christians getting upset about the evils of the gay agenda and all this harm happening to our kids, and, 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 and maybe there's some truth to that, but if that's all she sees... She's going to wonder, where was the church when my Christian father was raping me? I'm not trying to harm anybody. I'm just trying to stay alive. Several years ago, I began studying the, the, the topic of homosexuality. Uh, and um, for me, I'll, I'll confess before you, uh, that it was, an it was an issue when I just started studying it. It was nothing more than just some issue to solve. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? And I I'm the type of guy that likes to go back to the text of Scripture and, and figure out what does the Bible actually say. Like, I'm never satisfied with simply absorbing the beliefs that I grew up with. I mean, sometimes those beliefs, as you know, are spot on. Sometimes your Sunday school teacher, what she taught you in second grade was spot on. But sometimes, yeah, sometimes the things we grow up with aren't actually rooted in Scripture. And, and I've been on a lifelong journey of weeding out the stuff that I simply have absorbed from a Christian culture versus what the Bible actually says. And so I began a journey looking at what does the Bible actually say about homosexuality? Now, early on in my scholarly journey, early on in my academic pursuit, I, I kind of looked up from my desk one day and realized, you know what, I know hardly any gay people. <laughs> I, I think if I'm going to study this topic, maybe I should get to know some actual gay people and, and hear their stories. And here I am, I was, I'm a professor at a small Bible college in California, and so I didn't, you know, I didn't know how to go about this conversation, and so I just kind of get to know somebody and tell them, hey, I'm a, I'm a Bible college professor studying the issue of homosexuality. You know, you look gay. Can I buy you lunch and hear your story? <laughs> That's not a recommendation, by the way. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't write that down. 
Um, but you know, sp- <laughs> people saw that I was trying. You, you know, the most, the, the most common response I got was, yeah, right. <laughs> You're a Christian and just wants to hear my story? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm like, no, really, I, I've got no agenda here other than my goal here is just to listen so that I can understand more, period. Full stop, pay for lunch. I've never met a Christian that just wanted to hear my story was the common response I got. Or the, the second common response I got was I've never met a Christian that was simply kind to me. And I said, well, that's a huge problem. Now I really want to get to know you and hear your story. And story after story, lunch after lunch, relationship after relationship, image of God bearer after image of God bearer, my my heart was, was undone because I kept hearing over and over and over some pretty traumatic experiences that gay people have had with the Christian church. Did you know that 83% of LGBT people were raised in the Christian church? 83%. This whole myth that you have the church over here filled with straight people and then you have the gay community over here filled with non-religious people, that is a myth. It is statistically, factually wrong. Of those 83%, 51% have left the church after 18, and an overwhelming majority of LGBT people who leave the church leave for relational problems, not just theological disagreement. Only 3% who left have left the church for specifically, primarily, theological disagreement. And so we wonder why this community over here has some reservations, let's just say, or maybe some uh, words to say about the Christian church. It is not just about theological disagreement. There is a deep, sometimes very dark history there. One of my friends, Drew Harper, grew up in the church. Um, Dad was a pastor. He left the church when he was 17. He said, to be gay in the American evangelical church is to be dead. You're an outcast, an orphan, a refugee, a diseased person. And you know, I grew up thinking or being told that the church is a hospital for sinners. Not a museum for the saints. Is that too old school? Do you guys still say that? Is that? I actually like it. There's some cliched things that are like, ah, eh, it's kind of goofy. I actually like that one. The church is a hospital for sinners. So when did it become a graveyard for gay people? We've given the impression that you, it's a hospital for certain kinds of sinners, but not for other kinds of sinners. My dear friend Leslie, when... Uh, When they were a teenager, uh, Leslie recalls a sermon series that their pastor preached. And these are Leslie's words, not mine. Leslie says, my pastor began a sermon series that included all the evils of homosexuality. He condemned all homosexuals to hell. God had no forgiveness for such deviance. Even worse was the mentally ill trans community. These people were an abomination in God's eyes. We must protect our children from their evil ploys. And my friends... Can you imagine? My friends were shouting amen and showing the appropriate levels of disgust. And I was ashamed that I was such an abomination to the God that I adored. To the God that I adored, not to the God that I was shaking my fist at. You hate me, I hate you, good riddance. It was, I love this God. This God sent his son to die for me and I want to live my life under his lordship, but I still have this unchosen thing I'm wrestling with, and I don't know what to do with it. And I asked Leslie, well, what did you, 
what did you do after hearing that sermon series? And Leslie said, well, I didn't, I was confused. I was, um, I didn't know what to do. So I went to my pastor and said, I, I, I don't know what to do with this. I, every part of me feels like I'm a guy, but I, I'm not a guy. I don't, I don't know what to do with this. And Leslie told me my pastor escorted me out of the church and invited me to never come back again. And Leslie didn't step foot in a church for another 18 years. You see, we can get the Bible right. No, let me rephrase that. We need to get the Bible right. I am a diehard Bible guy. I'm 43 years old. I got saved at 19. From the, from the day I got saved, I gave my life to studying every word of the scriptures because I believe it is God's authority over all matters of life and practice. We need to get the Bible right. But if we get love wrong, we are wrong. It's not truth or love or love or truth or I'm just going to err on the side of tru truth. If you err on the side of truth and don't love, you're not actually being truthful because love is truth. And truth is love. It's not an either or. And I'm not talking about, the, I'm not talking about love the sin or hate the sin. Okay, so um, I used to really like that phrase, love the sin or hate the sin, and it sounds, it sounds kind of good. But it was a gay friend of mine who pointed out to me several years ago, he said, let me ask you a question, Preston. Why is it always a straight Christian telling gay people that they're trying to love the sinner and hating the sin? Why is it always so one-directional? <laughs> like, you know, I'm sitting over here, you know, radiating in all of my heterosexuality, you know. <laughs> because, you know, if you're heterosexual, you, you know, you basically you have this whole sexual integrity purity thing just nailed, right? There's no problems there. So we're sitting over here looking down upon all those poor little sinners over there, those, those gay people, and said, hey, you're such a sinner. But you can thank me later. I, I love you anyway. I hate your sin. I hate your sin. Disgust me. In fact, you kind of disgust me. But I'll, I'll love you anyway. You know, I'll come down from my righteous heterosexual tower and grace you with my presence. That's how it feels when people are on, the, on just one side of that. They're being loved by this righteous person, even though they're a sinner, and that person is still hating their sin. It just has such a condescending feel to it. Rather than love the sinner, hate the sin, let's love the sinner, hate our own sin, and invite another broken sinner to follow Jesus together as one broken sinner to another. Because when it comes to sexuality, whether you're gay, straight, bi, pan, Whatever, we are all broken, clinging to Jesus, the only one who's not broken in his sexuality. And there's not one cross for straight people, one cross for gay people. I love what Paul says, that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. The kindness of God that leads to repentance. And there's many other passages, as you know, that talk about the church, us, the, the body of Christ being the, the tangible presence of God on earth. Like, like when, when people see 
God's people, they are seeing God's representation on earth. It's what it means to bear God's image. It's what it means to be the body of Christ. And so if we are the tangible representation of God on earth, and if Paul is correct that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, then we should be embodying the kindness of God if we desire repentance. And so my question for you is, if you were to ask your gay neighbor, friend, sibling, mother, father, I don't know, hey, when you think of the church, what comes to mind? Their knee-jerk response should be church oh kindness <laughs> if, I, if I want to experience kindness then I'm going to go find the nearest body of Christ because I know they radiate kindness we may disagree they may have some beliefs that that I may not agree with or or I don't know if I can embrace but if I want to experience the the thick kindness of God then I'm going to go find a body of Christians and I I'm Sorry to say, I don't think that's, that's going to be the, the response among most LGBT people in our society. At least it hasn't been my experience that when I talk to gay people, trans people, that when they think of the church, they think of kindness. But throughout Jesus' ministry, we see Jesus embodying the kindness of God, especially towards those who were viewed as socially unacceptable sinners by the religious elite of the day. Did I say something? <laughs> what, y'all don't like Jesus? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I got a few more minutes, right? When you see Jesus encountering people who were ostracized by the religious elite, I'm talking like tax collectors, adulterers, well, female adulterers, uh, sinners, Jesus always front-loaded kindness. If you, if you look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you look at when he's encountering people who are given the stiff arm by the religious elite, Jesus always front-loads kindness. You see, I've rarely met an LGBT person who was argued into the kingdom of God simply through quoting passages in the Bible. By the way, tomorrow we're going to do nothing but look at passages in the Bible. So some of you are like, when are we going to talk about theology? That's tomorrow. So if you can't make it, then um, I don't know, get the recording or something. We, we are going to talk about theology tomorrow. It's on the podcast? All right, cool. Listen to the podcast. When we see, see, Jesus had an excessively high standard of obedience. Jesus had a very high standard of obedience, but he excessively loved those who fell short of that standard. And it doesn't mean he didn't have a high standard of obedience. You know, G, there's not a single tax collector in heaven who's there today because Jesus gave his stance on the tax collecting lifestyle or the Roman agenda. They are there because he front-loaded kindness in relationship. He embodied the love of God towards those who have experienced nothing but judgmentalism and rejection from the religious elite. My friend Leslie, when she um, was kicked out of the church, she ended up joining the 
LGBT community and ended up falling in love with another woman named Sue. Uh, and they, a few years into the relationship, they ended up getting married. They were married for about five, five, six years. And um, Sue had this rare disease that caused her hands to shake really bad. And one night, uh, Sue went out to light a cigarette. And her hands were shaking so bad that she ended up lighting herself on fire. And Leslie, who was inside, rushed out of the house to find her wife engulfed in flames, howling and screaming. Leslie rushed Sue to the hospital, and Sue ended up dying in the hospital a few days later. And so Leslie is at the pit of despair once again. She's been through more trauma than any human I've ever met. And now her wife, she watched her life get burned alive. So what does she do? Well, she picks up the phone and she calls a church. Because she needs someone to do the funeral. She calls a church. Happens to be a really conservative church. Traditional church, very conservative theologically. Calls a church. The pastor answers. And Leslie says, hey, my name's... Leslie, you don't know me, I don't know you, um, but my wife just died. I don't know who to call, I don't know what to do. I need somebody to do her funeral. Can you do her funeral? And Leslie says, I, I will never forget what that pastor said. He didn't say, well, let me first give you my stance on the homosexual lifestyle. He said, Leslie, I would be honored to do this for you. I am so sorry for your loss. You must be grieving I can only imagine what it would be like to lose a loved one. I am so sorry. Can, can, we, can we come around you and just let, let us just take care of all the details. We'll pay for the funeral. We will be your, your family during this tragic moment. I am so sorry for your loss. Not a word that that pastor said betrayed his traditional theology of marriage. He simply embodied the kindness of God and by doing so, like the scales that fell from Paul's eyes, just the scales fell from Leslie, not because she was argued into the kingdom, but because she encountered the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And today, that was eight years ago, she has been walking faithfully with Jesus, spending her life mentoring other LGBT youth who are wrestling with their sexuality or gender identity. I've seen Leslie stay up until two in the morning talking people down from suicide because somebody is struggling deeply with their sexuality or gender and they have nobody to talk to, but they talk to Leslie and Leslie embodies the kindness of God. You see, Leslie is not an issue. Leslie's not just some person that, you know, that sinner that I will try to love, but I'll hate their sin. You see, Leslie is not just needy. Leslie is needed, and the church looks more like Jesus Christ because a pastor had the courage to say, we would be honored to do this. You see, because our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt. Because the greatest apologetic for truth is love. Father, we thank you for embodying your kindness to us and coming to us when we were in our sin, when we were far from you, when we were falling short of your standard, Lord, you reached out to us aggressively with your radical love. God, give us the courage in the face of debates, in the face of 
misunderstanding, in the face of judgmentalism, Lord, to embody the same radical kindness of God that, that you bestowed on us, Lord. May we embody that to people who have not experienced that from the church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.